0: going to stack the medical system to favor certain types of outcomes for certain types of people, whether it's by race, by sex, by gender. With the transgender issue, you see the new standards of care coming for these so-called gender-affirming care surgeries. James Lindsay
1: is the founder of the website New Discourses, author of The Marxification of Education, and co-author of Cynical Theories. He's one of the minds behind the Grievance Studies Affair, or Sokal Squared hoax, as profiled in Mike
0: Nana's new documentary, The Reformers. This is the unraveling of civilization if we allow for the full-scale corruption, political and ideological corruption, of our knowledge-producing sector.
1: This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Jekielek. James Lindsay, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Yeah, I'm always excited, Jan. James, there's a whole bunch of reasons I want to have you in this seat right now. We have this new film by Mike Nana about the Sokal Square hoax, which you were one of the three who perpetrated it some years back and kind of in the process opened my eyes to a whole crazy reality that I wasn't fully aware of before that. You have this new book, The Marxification of Education about Paulo Freire and his role in why our education system is the way it is. And finally, I mean the thing that really got me thinking about you is you have this amazing, amazing presentation you gave um, in with to an EU political party about the genus of Marxism. So we're gonna talk about all this. Let's start with the film. And let I mean let's just start with the Sokol Squared hoax. And why don't you just kind of remind us what that was? People will remember. There were these hoax papers. Jump in.
0: Yeah, so 2017, 2018 is the timeline just to kind of put everybody in, in, in where we were in time. And so Peter Boghossian and Helen Pluckrose, two colleagues of mine, and I decided that one of the best ways to expose the corruption in academia and to credential ourselves as people who can criticize the corruption coming out of academia would be to get a large number, as many as we could actually, of academic journal papers written and published in leading academic journals. feminist theory, feminist philosophy, gender studies, critical race theory and education and so on, journals. And so we spent the year, we wrote 20. Seven of them were accepted for publication. Four of them actually got published. It's a slow process. All of the seven would have been. Uh, And then one of them was given an award for excellence in scholarship. Uh, The Wall Street Journal figured out what we were up to, caught us, we came clean. So in October of 2018, they broke the story. Our project came to a screeching halt. Seven accepted, seven still under peer review, uh, and six that we had decided we hadn't succeeded with and had retired as the final scoreboard. Uh, How many of those other seven would have been accepted? The sociologist suggested either four or five of them would have been. In other words, we cracked the code. So we were aiming to expose that the scholarship, which is what we build our our knowledge base, our public policy, our our journalism, you know, what we think is real in society suffers a tremendously fatal political corruption that we could make up fake articles, just ridiculous conclusions that were of course politically fashionable. Uh, Some of these things were very funny, some of them were very heinous, uh, upsetting and disturbing. Um, and could get them through the peer review process and, and regard it as genuine academic literature. You basically
1: figured out that if you put certain keywords and structure the logic in a certain way, you would get in because basically anything with that logic, with that structure, with those concepts that, was, that sounded good would get in. Is that the idea? Right, so yeah.
0: the sixth that failed showed us that you know there's a learning process. Those were in fact the first six that we wrote. And so at some point we started to get the hang of it. What, what are the peer reviewers looking for? What do the journal editors believe is the way that the world o- actually operates? How do we phrase that? How do we dive into the existing body of now, I would say sham literature to back up those ideas so that the, the scholars would consider it real? And we became very successful at this to the point where near the end of the project, apparently I'm on camera at some point saying this, um, that we had in fact cracked the code and we can get, we can get anything we want published at this point. And it's not to say we could publish anything that has to follow certain things, but for example, some of the papers that didn't get all the way through, they were under the review process, one of them is very prescient for our time because it was actually saying that what we need to do, they're meant to be funny, what we need to do is be very wary of advanced artificial intelligence. And So rather than allowing artificial intelligence to be guided by masculine bias, which will end in a calamity that destroys the world, we need to make it an irrational feminist. And so we argued for a feminist AI. And so the idea that we could dip into artificial intelligence research and just contribute garbage, I mean nonsensical garbage based off of the book Frankenstein and just silly things um, because we knew how to write it in a way that it would flatter the kind of stylistic and political biases and and, uh, it's really almost a culture, a language that they speak. Uh, is something that we convinced ourselves that we had actually succeeded in doing. We can speak their language and articulate it their way and understand the way that, it, more than just replicating it, we can think the way they think. Who are they? The, so in this case, we're talking about feminist theorists, gender studies scholars, critical race theorists, but in more broad terms, we're talking about what the kids call woke these days. So the woke scholars, the Critical theorists who have taken off into these various domains of identity politics, primarily.
1: Yeah, I think what you did was prescient. I mean, it was remarkable. At, at the time, it was very valuable to me personally, and I know I only told you this recently. You know, we met a few years after all this happened, but I remember seeing this and wondering, and then realizing, you know, that had there had been this you know, very specific ideology that had even created entire disciplines of knowledge, so to speak, right? And yeah. it was just kind of a mind-blowing concept.
0: I mean, that is the concept behind it too. They call it constructed knowledges. And they say, and this is why it's so relevant. One of the things, I'm glad Mike Nana's film, so we had a filmmaker, Mike Nana. secretly we told about this very early on and he starts working with us about a month after we started so he's following us around cameras all the time asking us impertinent questions well they're pertinent but you know probing questions i guess is a better way to phrase it and getting inside of what was going on behind the scenes and trying to learn for himself what the same thing you're saying what in the world is going on here and it's taken him four years due to covid delays and different issues that came up and the industry pushback, the the film industry wouldn't let the final product come out. He could get no support whatsoever within the industry, so he had to figure out a different way to organize it and distribute it. And he had to recut it because he had been cutting it to satisfy the unsatisfiable editors. And now, you know, he's free to do what he wants. So it delayed it, but it's almost fortuitous that it was delayed because I think honestly, the grievance studies affair or the so-called squared hoax affair as the two names for it, I think it's never been more relevant, because I mentioned the thing about the AI and that we kind of saw this down the road, but every vein of relevant academic literature is now being touched by it, and people are much more aware than five years ago, four and a half years ago, that this is an issue of the scale that it is. And so, for example, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, it's one thing to say, oh, well, we got a feminist theory journal to believe in feminist AI, haha, you know, that, whatever. These same kinds of articles are now being published in the New England Journal of Medicine on the regular, and that's a very concerning issue. I mean, we've talked, and I think, in the past about the idea that our medical system is kind of going in this ideological capture, this medical Lysenkoism that I refer to, kind of a Sovietization of our knowledge production. There's the right answers, and if you don't agree with them, we're going to get you out of the academy. We won't publish you. You won't be able to get tenure or career or whatever, or worse, we'll hound you out uh, of your academic position or something like this, if you have the wrong cl- conclusions. And when you say, well, that's happening in these stupid humanities journals, well, I shouldn't, I guess, call them stupid, but they are. Uh, in this case, who cares? But when it's happening in medical journals, or if it cre- starts creeping into engineering journals, now we have some serious things we have to start to consider. And when we look at you know, what the Biden administration what the Democrats in Congress are saying and doing repeatedly, they're building off of this set of ideas. So the CDC, for example, will be informed by the things that are coming out of the New England Journal of Medicine, which has now imbibed this same political philosophy, where if we had the credentialing to get in the door, we could copy this in the New England. I, I have zero doubt that I could have all the papers in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm not a doctor. I don't know three things about medicine. I could write these articles for the New England Journal of Medicine starting today. And they, it would, other than checking my credentials, at the door, they, they, nothing they could do to stop me from completely polluting that, that literature. That's a very concerning problem. Because you understand how the ideology works. Right, and I also recognize that the gatekeepers at the journals who should have been keeping these things out are captured as well. So they know that they either must flatter, they maybe they agree, or they must flatter, or they must kowtow to this way of thinking about the world, this identity politics, that I think is ultimately derived from neo-Marxist thought. Uh, I think it's it, it's so overwhelmingly hegemonic within the academic universe now that, for whatever the reason—agreement, fear, uh, whatever—they they, it's certain that we could just get these straight through the gate over and over and over again.
1: I just want to highlight, you know, a moment that I remember very distinctly, and this was in 2020. Um, You know, the virus is raging ostensibly. Um, The BLM riots have begun, right? And then suddenly, and but everyone's supposed to be at home, right? This has been uh, sheltering in place. But suddenly, there's this 1,200, you know, medical professionals, ostensible medical professionals, sign a letter saying the real health emergency is uh, well is racism. Is racism, yeah. Right. Basically, people keep coming to me with this. They say this was. This was the moment that suddenly a light bulb went off in my head and the world changed and I realized
0: something really terrible is happening, right? That's, I think, easily the most common moment that I have pointed to for me as well. People tell me the moment I realized was exactly that. And this is exactly what the Grievance Studies Affair was trying to throw up a red flag and warn about. And we tried to do it by getting attention on how absurd these papers that we wrote are. For, for, for example, the most famous of these, chronicled the idea that well, the original idea behind it, and this is covered in, in Mike's film, is that uh, we were going to train men the way that we train dogs, because of feminism, right? So men are bad behaving, they're out causing rape culture or whatever else, and where if we get dog obedience manuals and train them like dogs with leashes and tra- you know treats or whatever, then we can get them to, to desist from unwanted behaviors and this kind of exploded by from just Peter and I were trying to figure out how do we structure this and he goes to the dog park with his dogs every day in Portland and I said well just park in some of your stuff from the dog park that, and he's, he writes me this draft that was mentally deranged just insane stuff about things dogs are doing and so the whole paper became focused on that we could tell that rape culture is a serious problem in society almost like an implicit bias test of a sort by seeing how people reacted to watching dogs have sex with each other at the dog park or sexually assault one another. And the peer reviewers were worried about things like, how did you respect the dog's privacy while you're watching them do this? Uh, You know, how do you know if the dogs are male or female? Did you, so we said that we inspected their genitals, and then they said, well, how did you respect their privacy when you did that? We don't want to get the dogs you know, embarrassed or something. How do you know when a sexual assault with a dog is wanted or not wanted? You're not a dog, so how do you know? And so we put, well, as humans and not as dogs in the paper, which is absurd that this is in academic literature. And it really did get a lot of attention, that particular thing, because we said, well, this proves that human beings act differently depending on if the dogs are both male or one dog's male, one dog's female and they react differently. So this proves that men are homophobic. So somehow that means there's rape culture and that they condone rape and therefore we have to train them like dogs. And this was given, this is the paper that was given an award. I mean, this is so absurd that it's difficult to even sit here and describe to you the paper without just thinking how on earth did anybody ever think that this was something real? Um, Another, of course, famously we wrote a chapter of Hitler's Mein Kampf as intersectional feminism. It's chapter 12, he says our movement needs to do this, 13 point plan or whatever it is, here's how we're gonna, our movement, our movement, he's talking about the growing out Nazi party before it becomes the Nazi party. And what are we, you know, our movement needs to, no half measures, this and that, the other thing. And so we just, everywhere he said our movement, we just scratched that out, but intersectional feminism, then started making all the language work and weaving in scholarship in between. Changed a lot of wording around without changing the meaning, so it wouldn't get caught by a plagiarism detector, and a feminist social work journal accepted this chapter of of Mein Kampf. Of, of It's obviously not Nazi ideology that it was being written about specifically there, but it's the totalitarian impulse that's being written about there, and how to organize a movement for it. And that's what they saw in themselves, and we sent, we held that mirror up to them, and they saw themselves reflected in totalitarian writing without realizing that's what it was and accepted it in a social work journal. So what do we see today in you know, 2022 and three? Well, we defund the police and we send in the social workers, right? And this is again and again, I can give you those examples, but Peter and I talked about, for example, writing a paper uh, for a medical journal. If we could figure out how to get the, through the credentialing, we were gonna write one to say that the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Well, no, 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 we should actually just redist- redistribute harm we should do harm selectively so that we create health equity. Uh, And so doing no harm, that's not possible at a level of first principles, so we're gonna throw that out. And we accused the origin of that phrasing of do no harm in medicine. We we pinned it to some book that was written by a doctor in Britain in the 1850s, where he has some story in the book about where he dealt with the so-called savages when he went to India in the colonial time. And we were like, so he's obviously racist, the whole program's racist, we have to get rid of the Hippocratic Oath, the whole concept of do no harm. But then what did we just see? It was big in the news where the medical school graduation last year, they rewrote, no, it's a the medical school admission, not a graduation. And they had the students recite a new replacement to the Hippocratic Oath. And it's exactly the things that we're, we're talking about. So this is why that silly dog thing, or this horrifying Mein Kampf, thing in social work, but now we see this in medical journals. This is why this is so important. So it's zero surprise for people like me when when they came out in 2020 and said racism is a real public health threat because the critical race apparatus would say that that's exactly what they would say. And what do we have to do? Well, we have to, as we said in the paper that we never actually submitted anywhere, redistribute harms instead. So we're going to stack the stack the uh, medical system to favor certain types of outcomes for certain types of people, whether it's by race, by sex, by gender. With the transgender issue, you see you know, the new standards of care coming for these so-called gender-affirming care surgeries. This is Lysenkoism. I invoke the name of Trofim Lysenko again. I know a lot of people don't know who he was. He was the agriculturalist for the Soviet Union. He had absolutely crackpot Soviet biology that he was, had more or less invented. It doesn't work. It was based in incorrect theories of, of genetics. It was based in Soviet ideology to displace the Western bourgeois ideology. So he believed that you could convince, you know, seeds and plants to, to be comrades and to share resources and grow better, or to transform from a lower type of plant, like I don't know, oats, to a higher form of plant, like rye. He was famously famous for having remarked that, given long enough, he could teach oranges to grow in Siberia for the people. And, of course, this is preposterous that he he thought he could do any of this, but Stalin did not think he was preposterous, or maybe he did and didn't care because it was a tool for power, and Stalin implemented Lysenko in agriculture and starved tens of millions of people in Soviet Union. And then Mao comes along and says, well, that's actually Soviet biology, so that's what we're going to use even though it was a disaster in the Soviet Union, and Mao starved tens of millions of people in China using these failed theories. So when I say that we're dealing with a Lysenkoism in the medical field, we have to start wondering what this reprioritization of care, this so-called affirming care that's not actually care, it's a very aggressive treatment protocol for a issue that isn't even clear for sure what it is, Mental illness or otherwise, but it's not a conservative protocol to start putting people on puberty blockers, cross sex hormones, you know, mastectomies, uh, genital surgeries. These are very serious, that's a very serious pathway of care to adopt. This is a lysenkoist model though, because if you disagree with it, you'll lose your medical license. If you disagreed with the, if you wanted to prescribe somebody ivermectin during Covid, you might have lost your license to practice medicine. If you disagreed with the official word about Covid, you might have lost your 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 license to practice medicine. This is the same story. This is lysenkoism in medicine. We'll see it in other fields that get touched by this. Um, so, it's a very alarming problem. And I will say, just as a last, I know I've gone on a bit, but. As the last point, it was in the middle of doing this Grievance Studies Affair. The reason I do what I do now, I go out, I study this Marxist or neo-Marxist phenomenon, I tell people about it, I travel all over the country and world talking about it, uh, is because in the middle of the Grievance Studies Affair, one of these papers we wrote, we got the feedback from the peer reviewer, and I was so shocked by the way they endorsed some of the worst ideas that we had written and downplayed the idea of using compassion while applying kind of thumbscrews in a sense not literal but you know abusing students in classroom to overcome privilege was the idea they said well you can't do it compassionately because you'll recenter the needs of the privileged that i decided that this logic unravels civilization ends in millions of deaths and i asked my wife can i Quit my job. You talk about, people say I'm a coward sometimes. You talk about courage. Go to your wife and ask if you can quit your job because you think that the world's going to end if you don't. Uh, see what she says to you. See if you have the the nerve to ask your wife that. And I said, can I, honey, I think that the, this ends in a genocide or something. Can I please quit my job and dedicate my life to f- telling people about this full time? And she, of course, a practical woman, she says, can you make money doing that? And I said, well, I don't know. And she gave me an 18 month runway. So she's the hero of this story, really, because it took 16 months to. Write a modest check, but um, is that serious? At the time, I was doing this as you know to expose something, it largely to kind of have fun, and it turned very serious because this is the unraveling of civilization if we allow for the full-scale corruption, political and ideological corruption, of our knowledge-producing uh, sector.
1: Yeah, you're a mathematician actually by training, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. it's been a while. Yeah, <laughs> but yes, but. You know what this reminds me of there's so many babylon b you know joke articles that also seem to come true after a while i mean in there's there's something analogous to these hoax papers to those articles as well
0: yeah seth dylan and i have actually spoken about that on a number of occasions it's not quite that we have the camaraderie to where we're doing a you know to be a little nerdy legolas and gimli you know, how many how many stories have come true for you, you know, competition where they're counting the orcs that they're shooting or whatever, and the Lord of the Rings, but it's, you know, oh, you got one, oh, I got one, oh, you got one, you know, uh, these things are coming true because what we're actually identifying is the way that they are processing the information about the world and warping it to fit their ideological worldview, which is quite simplistic once you get past the complicated academic veneer, and you can very easily see down the road as to what kinds of things uh, they, they might actually think that they will eventually actually think. Uh, and so this is a very common thing. Satire is effective satire because it stretches reality. And when we're dealing to get technical with you in a field that's adopted a completely social constructivist view of reality, uh, they think that everything is a political contrivance designed by the people in power to continue their own power. It's not based in reality at all. It's just political contrivances based, built by the people in power to keep their power. When you've adopted that, the only reason not to stretch reality further is that you have a political reason for saying enough is enough. In other words, maintaining the status quo. So their slope is always slippery. So with satire, if you stretch reality, all you're doing is really telling what's coming in some undetermined time in the future, days, months, maybe years.
1: I love the film. You know uh, the Mike made, and it's kind of a just took me back to that time, and I've thought about how much has changed since then, right? Well, some how much came, I guess came true, yeah. Um, since then, maybe is there a moment in the film you want to quickly? Maybe we'll show a quick vignette because I want this is a film I want people to watch.
0: Oh gosh, I mean it's, it's it was a, a experience watching it for me because I Mike didn't allow us to see any of this since and in between, so it's been all these years, and all of a sudden I'm thrown back. Um, Maybe there's a moment that stands out. I mean, he's a very famous guy, Tim Poole, actually. Of all things, Tim Poole came to we did this event at Portland State University in February 2019. 18, jeesh. So February 2018, Tim Poole showed up to this event. He just happened to be in Portland, wanted to see what was going on, cover it or whatever for his little show. He had. It was little back then. It's big now. And he sat in the back. Quietly, listen, and he asked this question. You know, they've captured all the institutions. This is per- pertinent today, more pertinent today. They've got this. They've got the government. They got the media. They got this. They got that. They got the universities, the institutions. They've got it all. How do you stand up to them? And I, I can't. I don't. I was shocked to see myself. And I answered, "Well, Galileo stood up to the church, didn't he?" I think that's exactly what I said. And I just said, "You know, we have to stand up. We have to have that courage, and we have to take it on." I think I said something like they were setting people on fire back then for standing up to the magisterium, and they've erected a new, it's a very woke kind of academic magisterium that's gone political, that's infested our institutions. The only thing we can do is stand up and drag it back toward truth. We've got to take the truth as our, our armor and, and take that moment. So maybe that scene, um, which I think is in the, the third part of the film. Um, ironically, while Tim Pool was asking, within, within a few minutes, an hour anyway, Tim Pool asking us that question is when our first paper got accepted also, unbeknownst to us.
1: Social media networks are siding against you. Yes, They they tend to err on the side of intersectionality. That's true. Businesses and brands tend to, even it seems, at least the perspective here is that the school has also done this by shrinking the room you've given given access to, by not listing your event. How are you expecting
0: to combat it at all? We're in this event not thinking, the dog park paper I described earlier was being accepted while we were doing that event, while maybe not while Tim Pool was asking the question, but while we were in that room uh, that's in that other scene, it turns out that's exactly when our first paper got accepted and proved to us, oh my gosh, we can do this. So it's really a pivotal mo- you know, moment, pivotal evening depicted there.
1: So, I mean, in, you know, kind of in a very pithy way, what, what is the big lesson of the grievance studies affair or the Sokol
0: squared hoax. Whoever has the the keys to say this is what's true and what's false, which should be everybody, should be able to determine for themselves with their senses, their eyes, their ears, their own experiments, this is the scientific or enlightenment or liberal or free ideal. Everybody has the keys to go out and understand the world around them and to offer their arguments and hash it out and so on. But if those are locked behind an ideology a catastrophe is coming. And the lesson is, undoubtedly, those at the highest level of what we consider the information-generating or knowledge-generating apparatus of, of Western civilization, those are now locked behind a door that's held by a very ideological contingent, has a very clear agenda with how they want to transform the world to bring it in line with what they think the world should be rather than what it is.
1: You know, when you say that, I can't help but think about what I've been reading in the Marxification of Education. And this is a stark reminder that, you know, Marx viewed all what he would call ideology, right, as kind of exactly what you just said. And that, you know, Marxism was the answer to get, getting rid of all of that. Marxism was the lack of ideology somehow. But, you know, the,
0: ironically, it's perhaps the most potent ideology. Right. Um. And that is. That's how Marx framed it. He said that his is the only non-ideology. It is the end of ideology. And, and you hear, we hear this argument all the time. Antifa is anti-fascist. How could it possibly act in a fascist way if it's anti-fascist? Anti-racism is anti-racist. How could it possibly be racist if it's anti-racist? And here it is, you know, Marxism is the end of ideology. How can it be an ideology itself if it's meant to end ideology? But what he thought ideology was was something different. It's what the powerful in society create in order to maintain their power. I, of course, call this the iron law of woke projection because every time communists take power, what do they do? They create a bunch of ideological excuses for why they need to continue to keep power. And I call this projection, kind of very Freudian, because I actually think that what they're doing when they say these things is confessing that this is how they believe the world actually works. They believe the world works by people who are in power taking power and shutting everybody else out of power. So what do you think they're going to do when they get power? They're going to take power and they're going to shut everybody else out because they think that's how it works. And then they they clothe that in good intentions, but hey, at the end of history, when, as Lenin put it, when the the, the dictatorship becomes absolute, the, the state will wither away, it'll go away, we won't need it anymore. And that's kind of the magic moment if you look at the Greek Pygmalion myth. You know, he carves this woman out of ivory because he saw the prostitutes, and he got angry, and he said, like, oh, women are awful. So he goes and carves a—I'm going to be a sculptor—and he carves things, and he carves a woman out of ivory, and he falls in love with his own statue, and he asks, I guess, Aphrodite to bring it—to give him a woman like the statue. He comes home from his, you know, trip to the temple, and the statue he kisses it, and it comes to life. And so that's the magic moment of it coming to life. That's, so they, they carve away the society in a sense, the existing society, to get to their ideal, which they've decided the nitty gritties of life they hate. So they carve away the existing society, just like Pygmalion with a block of ivory, carves it down to the image of a perfect woman that's not a woman, it's a rock, right? And so then the god intervenes when it's perfect satisfies his wish and it magically comes to life. This is what Lenin's actually talking about. We're going to carve the society by chipping away everything we don't like. We're going to chip and chip and chip away till everything is in, in ashes, except the perfect thing that we envision. And when that becomes absolutely perfect and enforced, it'll come to life and we'll have communism and we will not need a state anymore. It's the exact same belief in a magic that's just not there. And Lenin didn't make it up, he got it from Marx. This is actually the idea, and and we see this repeated in the 20th century Marxists, the Western Marxists. Marcuse says that we, we can criticize the parts of society we don't like, and then the future that is contained within the present might emerge. The ideal future that's contained within the contaminated present might emerge if we merely criticize away all the other parts. But there's that same issue, is that at what point does the idol become a god which is at the bottom, what this is? They've created an idol of what society is meant to look like, and they believe that if they're sufficiently pious or powerful—which is, you know, the faith of which is of their, their version of pious, yeah. right? Actually, it is. Yeah. yeah. Then it will. Then it will. They will be rewarded by Aphrodite or God or whatever, and the idol will become god. This is the religious mind behind this whole program, and it's no surprise. It's wholly negative. It's chipping away, destroying what it doesn't like. supposed to create something positive out of that, and it never works because it's just destructive, and what you're left with is a a mutilated idol that won't come to life. There's no magic that's going to make that happen.
1: Well, and you've actually argued that this is, you know, kind of, I guess, the the follow-up of the Gnostic heresy. I think it's the same
0: story. Yeah, this is the Gnostic heresy. You, you have looked inside of yourself and understood your lived experience, if you want the modern parlance, in a way that only you can understand. It's hidden esoteric knowledge about the true meaning of you and your life that you can now actualize into the world and by doing so create salvation, but because it's an inherently collectivist ideology that Marxism is really deriving even from Hegel before him. That the state is the perfect embodiment of of the deity bestriding the earth, inherently collectivist in its nature. It works when we all agree, when the social conventions of society, whether it's from Rousseau, whether it's from Hegel, whether it's from Marx, when the social conventions all accept this same idolatrous, if you will, view of, of the perfected society, then we have our salvation. That's when the communism True communism, the true transcendence of private property, human self estrangement, as Marx phrased it, that's when that arises out of the iron fist of the dictatorship of the proletariat.
1: You know what I really liked uh, when you did this speech at Identity and Democracy, right? Is how you kind of explained that Marxism is really at the root or at the genus level, right? For the those of us that are biologists, that that is very apt. and then the, the, there, it has its various species. It has the original Marxism, which focuses on class, right? Right. But then there's all these other variants, right? Right. And then we can, you know, jump into talking about the education variant.
0: Yeah, the education variant. There's every variant you can imagine. But what? But, but lay, lay it out for me. Yeah. So I wanted people to understand because it's a very frequent discussion point. I have. I get two primary arguments against. My claim that what's happening in the world is fundamentally, in the West, at least it's fundamentally a communist revolution, it's trying to, it, it, but it's got Western characteristics. And so what I was trying to do, I was thinking, how can I communicate this? The two, two primary objectives are, well, use this corporations, so it can't be Marxism, which I have an answer to that, but that's not this moment. And the second one is, I don't think it's Marxism at all because it's talking about things like race, it's talking about things like je- sex and gender, it's talking about education, it's, not, it's culture, it's not talking about economic class material conditions. So it's not Marxism at all. And so I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. And the, the picture in my, my head while I was there in Brussels was, well, you know, it's evolved. And so I started trying to work through the morning of my lecture, it was sometime in the afternoon, I was trying to work through how do I communicate that it's evolved, and I said, do you know, well, what happens in evolution is you have speciation, but species derive from a genus. So you have some, you know, earlier ancestor, and the ancestor speciates, and then all the things that came out of that ancestor at whichever level are within a single genus, and there's families and orders and phylum or whatever above that. My taxonomy is limited in its skill, but I got the idea of the genus species picture. So. What I said is, with genus, you know, I, th- I don't know exactly where it falls in, but somewhere there's genuses of cats. Maybe we have to go to like Pantera or order Pantera. I don't know where it is, but there's cats. We all know what cats are. We can do this kind of biblically with kinds, I guess. We know what cats are. And some cats are lions, and some cats are tigers, and some cats are house cats, and some cats are pumas and clouded leopards. and whatever. They're all, But if you shine a laser pointer, it doesn't matter if it's a tiger or a house cat. It chases it. They're all, they have very similar characteristics, but they're also very different. Lions and tigers are not the same animal. Um, so they're, they're di- distinct species of one single genus of, 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 of animal. And Marxism works the same way. If we take a step back and say, no, Marx was creating a Gnostic theology that applies, and a method of practice of that, that theology, so a religion, that applies very broadly, and it's the seizure of the means of production of man and then if you say, that's what's at the heart of this, it's a seizure of the means of production of society and mankind. That's kind of the essence of Marxism through conflict and the whole dialectical materialism, this whole thing. you can We could summarize that, but it, you take a step back and say, that's what Marxism is in the big picture genus level. Then we start looking at different species. Well, Marx believed that your economic conditions looking at industrial uh, capitalism in the 1800s, not the best circumstance really also not wanting to get a job and therefore conditioned by the idea that, you know, I could ha- I could do whatever I want if I didn't have to get a job, you know, that kind of mentality. Oh, economic conditions determine who you are as a person. So man is produced by his economic conditions. And so you get the species we call classical Marxism or materialism or economic Marxism. But and So you can,
1: now the the oppressed have to seize the seize mechanism the, of exactly. production. Exactly. So
0: yeah. the, they seize the means of production and turn the system over to benefit themselves and to liberate everybody from the system of oppression. It's Gnostic, by the way, because whoever has the means of production to begin with operates like a demiurge, the creator, the evil demon that actually structures the world and entraps human beings in the material reality instead of freeing our divine spirit that we actually are. So Marx sees it this way, and the underclass gains the gnosis, socialism in his phrasing, realizes that he's all along been a species being who has the capacity to change history, to create history, to be history, and so he sees the means of production and produces man to become socialist man instead, at which point everything will become increasingly socialistic. But you could interchange out where you think the means of production are. So if you're a critical race theorist in the say 70s or 80s, in the United States, 90s, and you're very obsessed with the ways that race has contoured life in America, you might say race is actually the primary producer of the means Uh, of the the condition of man, and the whole thing falls out, and critical race theory just lands in your lap. It's an exact replication of this same idea, so now you've gone from a lion to a tiger, if you want, two different species of the same kind of animal. But then you could be, say, a queer theorist, these kind of feminists that started with the the line of Simone de Beauvoir, you know, one is not born but becomes woman which in kind of the Hegelian German would be Frau sich, woman in herself. So what does it mean to be a woman outside of the patriarchal constructions of woman that construct us into being women as help meets to men or whatever she's objecting to? So she has this pathway that goes from her to Foucault to Judith Butler and these other queer theorists. Well, they're sitting there and thinking, well, who in the world gets to decide what's normal? Not me and my life is not that good, because I'm not a normal woman. If you're Judith Butler, you're a bit of a butch lesbian. So you are, like, okay. But I don't fit the mold, so I'm not normal. There's a problem. Somebody else is in charge of that. And the same model, though, if we see the means of production of what's considered normal versus queer, then we can have uh, a revolution and liberate people in terms of sex, gender, sexuality, and other factors to have to do with their personal characteristics. And queer theory lands in your lap from the exact same architecture. So the speciations, is it the, maybe economic conditions produce what it means to be a person or who you are? Maybe it's race. Maybe it's normalcy. Maybe it, or normalcy. Maybe it's um, which they call normativity. Maybe it's um, you know fat status, ability status. Maybe it's whether or not you are considered valid as a knower. Maybe your interpretation of your lived experience should be considered more valid than whatever the the, the knowledge producers at the university or the school or. You know, whatever, say it is. And that's where we get Freire. Well,
1: also, this is what I found so fascinating reading the Marxification of education, because, you know, I've been learning a lot over the past few years about, you know, this current, very, very bizarre and intense cultural moment we're in. And, you know, that book is helping me kind of, you know, put together a whole bunch of pieces of disparate knowledge that, for example, this idea of lived experience, right, and how this idea, you know, is is core to Freire's ideas, but it's also core to so many of these other species. Right. right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so Freire thinks that the, 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 what's kind of the dynamic in this particular species, if we will, is that if you live in the world, you already know. You're already a knower and your knowledge, this is the fav- favorite word of the day, you know, and, and we hear from the woke all the time. You notice they don't talk very often about true and false. They say it's valid. Your knowledge is valid, right? your feelings are valid, your emotions are valid, your well, anger they, they is valid. They don't believe in true and false. Right, but right? they do believe in what gets counted as valid and Correct. invalid. And so in this case, you already know things. So if you're a peasant, let's say, working in Brazil, and you don't have a good life necessarily, you're, you are fairly oppressed. We're, say, 1960s Brazil, um, the government's corrupt, you've been colonized and decolonized and recolonized, and the, the government keeps going back and forth kind of from a Marxist thing over here now to a very kind of almost proto-fascist reaction thing, it's not great, and you're probably uneducated, but what's happened is South America started to industrialize, started to commercialize, and you know how to farm, and all of a sudden, you're just a hick. You're just a redneck. You're just a a bumpkin from the peasant peasant class, and your knowledge, yeah, you think you know how the world works, but you don't really know how the world works. You can't read even, right? And so he's looking at this, and he says, well, what's happening here is that there are people who have called themselves knowers, And they're saying other people's knowledges don't count. The lived experience that you have as a peasant, living and working in the world, he calls it the concrete knowledge of your experience and existence, doesn't count. And so they've set up this aristocracy that has to be overthrown. They are the ones who know you are the one who's absolutely ignorant, as Freire phrases it. And he says, but that's crap. You are a knower, you are a historical figure, you are gonna change history, you have the capacity to, to move history as a historical agent. And if we can awaken in you what he calls a critical consciousness, which is an extension of um, George Lukacs, a Hungarian Marxist from the 20s and 30s, what he called class, or what Marx also called class consciousness. Uh, if we can awaken in you a critical consciousness, which is this extension of class consciousness into the idea of everything in society actually needs to be criticized because it's actually dehumanizing it's, as he says it, domesticating, it keeps you in your lane, it keeps you submerged so that you have no possibility of understanding or rebelling. Well, what we're gonna do is we're gonna say no, no. We're gonna help you understand the truth about what this political context you're in actually means. We're not gonna teach you actual literacy until we teach you political literacy. And he teaches this literacy course in Brazil to get them to be politically literate to understand the context in which they live, to see themselves as knowers, because he says if you're a knower, then you can utter the word, and when you can utter the word or speak the word, you can change or create the world, which is, of course, the, the religious overtones there are, are obvious. This is an obvious mimicry of, you know, God spoke in, in the first book of Genesis, spoke the world into existence, and so Ferrari's project is the same thing, though, where the dynamic of have versus have not, oppressor versus oppressed, is those who get to decide what counts as knowing and those who don't get to decide what counts as true knowledge. And so when we adopt that, the elevation of lived experience, which is in fact not truly lived experience, it's not your experience, right? You, you, know, you go down the street, you have an experience. It's not lived experience until it's been run through the critical consciousness filter. Filter. So when somebody says it's been my lived experience that I have racism, what they mean is I've experienced things that may or may not have been racially tinged, that I've run through a racial consciousness filter provided largely by CRT, critical race theory, that has led me to interpret a system of racism that's made me color that. And that's lived experience because the elevation of the, it's not of your experience or your knowledge, it's when that's been politically conscientized, as Freire has it, that becomes king. And that is better than the official knowledge because it's the knowledge that the, the them in society, the powers that be, don't want you to know. They don't want you to have. So that's your saving gnosis, your, your freedom-setting or salvific, really, knowledge that gets you out of the trap of submersion and oppression. So the the Gnostic elements are very clear, the Marxist flavor is very clear, but instead of it being material conditions now, it's access to being considered a knowledgeable person or to knowing or even setting the conditions of knowledge. When we look at the woke literature, we talk about the grievance studies affair that we just were discussing, immediately you see the primacy of lived experience, which is a phenomenologically interpreted coloring through critical consciousness of experience. We immediately see though how it's always whose knowledges are valid and whose knowledges are invalid. Your truth versus my truth, and if you don't understand the power dynamics behind the construction of truth, then you can't possibly have anything to say. Everything we've experienced coming out of this broadly woke movement in the past 10 to 15 years even, longer than most people realize, is colored by this elevation of the oppressed, by virtue of their oppression, hold a greater knowledge, a superior knowledge to uh, what, what Hegel might've called first stand or understanding. So
1: what's really interesting to me is that you've kind of provided a framework to understand something that kind of undergirds all of these other critical or cynical as you called them in, in your book theories. And by the way, I'll just comment on that. Actually, it was incredibly valuable to understand why you called your book, the book you wrote with Helen Pluckrose, cynical theories because the worldview is cynical. It imagines everything as a power play. This is an incredibly important concept. I want mean, to just get you to reiterate that for me here quickly. Well, I mean, it is. Yeah. It,
0: it, it is. Every, the, when they say the world is socially constructed, or race is socially constructed, or gender is socially constructed, what they're saying is that there is a power dynamic that has set up our understanding of that concept in that particular way and it has imposed it upon the lower class for the advantage of the upper class. So this is intrinsically conflict-oriented, stratified society kind of thinking, just like Marx adopted. But I also insist it's intrinsically Gnostic, that you have the creator class, which is the, the, in, a, analogous to the demiurge of Gnostic philosophy or religion, uh, that sets the terms of the world. If you literally take, as the Christian Gnostics did, if you take Yahweh, in, in the book of Genesis to be the demiurge, and that there's a actual genuinely high God behind that that you can obtain knowledge of and save yourself from the trap of, of the evil imprisoning of, of mankind in, in in garden and then in the world. If, if you actually see that the people who have access to own the means of production of society and man as a demiurge in, in, in the world rather than one that's kind of spiritual, modern versus pre-modern thinking, as a matter of fact, what you actually see is the transition. This is where Rousseau and Hegel, Kant, and uh, not to put those two in the wrong order, but uh, Rousseau, Kant, Hegel, and, and Marx, this is really the big contribution that became Romanticism and German idealism as a literally, in my opinion, mystical structure. And the only way that they can interpret the world is through this negative thinking. They think The Gnostic belief is that the demiurge is an evil demon posing as God that has created a holy bad world to trap the holy good spirit of man in a fallen world as as a prison. So everything that you see is actually this horrible, sinful, mundane, impressed upon your truly glorious divine self. And so the goal is to be wholly negative about what you see. Wholly negative about the world around you to constantly, as Marx phrased it, to give ruthless criticism of all that exists, and this is exactly what you see. So what you then have is, if I have an interaction with you or with somebody, you know, of another race or of another sex or whatever, there's always some cynical interpretation for what went on. You know, maybe I would talk to a woman, and then we just have a conversation, Then we go our own way, and nothing happens. Whatsoever. It's just a, hey, how are you? Oh, it's good to see you. Nice to have run into you, blah, blah, blah. And she goes off and has a cynical way. Well, he probably wanted to get me in bed or something like that. It's very cynical, right? Maybe I had no such idea. There's even a meme about this, right? The man and the woman laying in bed together, and she's like, he's probably thinking about other women. And he's over here like, uh, if I were to put ham and turkey on the same sandwich, you know, is a very cynical interpretation. These... Philosophies feed the most cynical interpretations of the alleged empowered class, the demiurge class, the bourgeois class, and these are all synonymous in my usage just now. The oppressor class, all synonymous. The most cynical interpretation of all of their motivations and actions possible. So we call it cynical theories instead of critical theories because when they're doing their criticism, it is ruthless criticism of all that exists. It is cynical criticism of the power motivations behind every possible thing that happens.
1: Well, and, and it allows you to, you know, I guess, hate
0: even. It allows you to... Well, you must at the end. Not necessarily originally. The philosophy maybe doesn't call for that. Eventually it will. The ideologues with enough power will openly call for it. I mean, Mao openly taught, for example, to hate the enemy. You know, there are the people and then there are the enemy. The enemy is not part of the people, and you, he taught absolutely, that you must find ways to support and help and be on the side of the people to resolve contradictions among the people. A very famous speech he gave in 1957 was on resolving the contradictions among the people, and he immediately gives the so-called friend-enemy distinction that's more famously given to the Nazi jurist uh, Carl Schmitt, which is getting a little bit of a resurgence now in the reactionary right, tangentially speaking. but. Um, he gives his friend-enemy distinction immediately. Well, there's the enemies. And he openly taught, if you talk to, say, Shivan Van Fleet or any of these, Lily Dong Williams, any of these uh, survivors of the Cultural Revolution who are now speaking up here in America, they'll tell you, we were taught to hate the enemy class, to hate. And so the, maybe not at the beginning, maybe it's just distrust, paranoia, cynicism. At the end of the road, it is. It's going to be absolute hatred of the people that you believe are holding you back from the liberation you feel like you're entitled to to receive,
1: and you know, we saw something like this in you know the unvaccinated, for example, right, being demonized in all sorts of ways. I mean, this deplorables,
0: that, unvaccinated, so one, it's always those are the people preventing society from, as, as Malphrased it, achieving unity on a new basis. It's hard to imagine. I mean, there's been these
1: clips now, kind of compiled of the types of things people said, whether it's about deplorables or the unvaccinated and like, you know, people with full-throated denunciation. I mean, really kind of reminiscent of these struggle sessions of the Cultural Revolution in China and so forth.
0: Yeah, virtually identical. I mean, that's the model I just alluded to. Mao said unity on a new basis. That was actually the third part of his three-part formula to transform society. He bragged that he created it in 1942. I've read but don't know for sure, haven't tagged down to see if it was actually an import from Stalin. Mao and Stalin didn't actually like each other. Stalin didn't trust him. He thought he was a country bumpkin, kind of ironically or whatever. And I think he was a country bumpkin, as it turns out. But uh, at any rate, it may have been a program that he derived from the the Soviet Union, and it may have been his own invention. But the formula was called unity, criticism, unity, so it's a three-part strategy. And so the first unity means inculcating the desire for unity. Don't we all want to have a space where we feel like we belong? Don't you want this to be a welcoming and inclusive environment? That's the modern parlance. And then the second stage is to, to enter into criticism, which then leads to self-criticism and struggle. He even says that the method of criticism is struggle. And what that is is, well, we can't have a welcoming space if, if, if Jan is transphobic. Transpho- trans people cannot feel welcomed and like they belong in a space with a transphobe. So now Jan has to change himself and then we'll have unity on a new basis where transphobia is completely not allowed. And so this is actually his totalitarian formula, how we're gonna purge society of the undesirables And bring everybody onto a new political basis, which he—that was his exact words—unity on a new basis, which he called socialist discipline. We use words like sustainability, equity, and inclusion today, but this is the same model. This is why you see the same things. We could have all had unity. We could have ended COVID in two weeks if we all just would have wore our masks, stayed home, and we everybody got vaccinated. It would have ended. Joe Biden standing up there saying it's going to be a severe winter of dying and death, sickness and death or whatever. We have a pandemic of the unvaccinated. It's the exact same. We would be in unity, which was another campaign the Biden administration pushed right after the election. We'd be in unity if all of you people who won't get on the program, all you deplorables, all you unvaccinated, if you would just do what you're supposed to, we would have unity and we'd be able to move forward into a glorious new future, but you won't. And so it's you're the one who needs to be criticized and you are the one who needs to be denounced, Mao, Ferrari, both denunciation of that which they don't like, so that we can have unity on a new basis and move forward together, and you are the problem, you are the thing holding us back. That's the mentality, that's the message, and that's why you see this carbon copy, whether it's COVID, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's trans-affirmation, whether it's um, environmentalism with fighting emissions and embracing the electric, or the what do they call it, the Green New Deal, or whatever it is, it's the exact same formula Because it's the formula to force everybody to scapegoat and attack and hate, eventually, everybody who won't get along with a new program that's been deigned from on high as the only true path forward. So,
1: let's jump back to Freire. You know, you actually make a case that there's a kind of Maoist impulse in Freire's teachings.
0: Well, actually, just to be very clear, in the Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is Freire's magnum opus from 1970. In a footnote at the beginning, he says his method of education is based on what he's observed and his hearing is happening in Mao's education, his, his revolutionary high schools and colleges in, in China. So it's derived from Mao's educational program, at least in part, or for at least the rumor that Freire had of how it was working. So, yes. How
1: important is Freire's thinking to the current
0: educational system? Um, central. There's a book that was written in 1992 by a Marxist professor who was at the time at Iowa State University. His name is Isaac Gottesman, and the book is called The Critical Turn in Education. So he gives a historical view of roughly the mid to late 1960s up to, at the time, the present day, 2015-ish. How did education change? His first sentence in the book, literally the first sentence is, Where did all the 60s radicals go? Well, not to the religious cults, not to yuppiedom, but to the classroom. That's his first sentence. And then he goes on to explain, and he says that Paulo Ferreri's work is really the pivotal work. And by 1992, so he gives the date, by 1992, it had achieved the place where it is now found, which is everywhere. And so by 1992, our colleges of education were completely in thrall to Paulo Ferreri's work. Paulo Ferreri, I've just had a discussion with some Brazilian academics two or three days ago, and it's been very impactful in Brazil, but it's been much more successful in in the West, and North America in particular. So Frarian education is how we are taught. All of the stuff about child, you know, we're going to put the child at the center, not child, like we're going to give attention to the child, but the child's going to lead the classroom, right? This whole, we're going to put the, the young people are on top, of course that's like Mao's youth revolution. They are gonna tell us what they need to know because of course they're pure, like Rousseau believed. They're born pure and then society corrupts them. So we're gonna let them decide, what do they need to learn? How do they need to learn it? And the teacher then subjugates themselves from the role of teacher to facilitator, co-learner and facilitator. So they learn from their students what it is that the kids have going on in their life. We call this culturally relevant teaching, which was created by a woman, Gloria Ladson Billings, in 1995, and who said she was packaging Ferrari's critical pedagogy into the critical race context in creating it. She wrote three papers in a single year, two on culturally relevant teaching, and one on uh, it's called Toward a Critical Race Theory of Education. And so it's just a repackaging. So we call it culturally relevant teaching today, that the idea is that we're going to find out where the kids are culturally, socially, emotionally, social and emotional learning is a big rage now. And we're going to use what we find to figure out what we're going to teach them. But we're really just going to facilitate them. But we facilitate them, as Freire indicates, into political knowledge. The lesson, whether it's mathematics, whether it's reading, whether it's history, it doesn't matter, science, is a mediator, he says, to knowledge. And the knowledge, true knowledge is political knowledge. And if they become politically conscientized or awakened or, in the modern word, woke, then they will want to learn the math or the reading or whatever for the sake of being able to transform the world. So we're going to radicalize the kids first, and being radicalized in theory will make them want to learn enough to transform the world. And that's the model. But you say how central. Since 1992, according to their own internal historians, he has been the central figure in, in academic uh, education theory. And everything, virtually everything, reflects off of him.
1: Do you think most teachers, high school teachers, grade school teachers, kindergarten teachers today understand that their educational method is this logic?
0: No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I can go back to Gloria Ladson-Billings. So she wrote these three papers in 1995. And so the Toward a Critical Race Theory of Education, the the second one is something like, I get the title a little bit mixed up, but it's Toward a Theory of a Culturally Relevant Pedagogy or something like that. Right. And so then the third one, you know, sometimes they give these cute. They, they, those are very descriptive titles. Sometimes they give like a quote or a, you know, cute title or whatever. Like in our grievance studies affair papers, one of uh, the, the title of the rewrite of Hitler's Mein Kampf was uh, our struggle is my struggle. Right. That was the title of the paper. So it was a cutesy kind of thing. And for her, it was actually a quote that she took from one of the teachers she was studying in it's But that's just good teaching is the title of the paper. But that, and then the descriptions and the subtitle, whatever it is, lots of words, academic words, but that's just good teaching. So your average person has gone through a program that at least since 1992, arguably depending on where they went earlier than that, and certainly it started heavily to infiltrate our colleges of education by 84, which is when Paulo Freire's politics of education started to transform that space. Um, there are other things pre- preceding that as well. So certainly though by 92, that's just been good teaching. That's best practices. Just like we're having doctors now learn that it's just best practices to do gender-affirming care. So no, I don't think they have the slightest idea, the vast majority of them, what ideology they're supporting, what, what logic they're participating in, where it even comes from. I mean, many of them have heard of Paulo Ferre, but what they're being taught is, this is the most sophisticated way to create engagement, that's the buzzword, engagement in students, and from engagement because that's the big problem. The kids won't learn because they're not engaged. So if we get engagement with students, then they're going to have learning. So this is just the best way to teach kids. And they might hear some of the kind of origins or the philosophy. They might be cited sometimes, but primarily, no. Primarily, it's this is actually what it is to teach. And if you actually read Freire, he very rarely cites anybody uh, at all. He just kind of Gives his his description of what he thinks teaching should be. Now he does rely, lean on you know Lenin and Marx, and occasionally Stalin and things quite explicit. Che Guevara is a big hero of his, but um, I don't think your average teacher has the slightest idea that this logic of putting student-centered learning or whatever the buzzword they use for it. Um, and the idea of using generative methods to increase engagement or culturally relevant teaching that, that this is anything other than just the contemporary best practices in education that a century of the science of learning has le- that that's another one of their buzzwords science of learning has led us to realize is the best way to teach kids which leaves them i think frustrated and puzzled thus radicalizable because the kids aren't learning to read and they're not learning to do math in fact they they're, 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 they're academic achievement scores are so abysmal it's shocking when you hear the percentages. I think nationally it's something like 40 percent of American students are achieving at grade level in math or reading. In certain districts, like I cite in the the beginning of the book, Providence, Rhode Island, we're talking single digits. Six percent of the students are learning mathematics at grade level in Providence. But they're some of the most politically activist students in the country. Something happens in Texas, like a school shooting. Every kid is out of the Providence schools on the statehouse steps doing a demonstration that afternoon. They know to be political activists because it's very engaging. It's just good teaching.
1: You make the case that the teachers have been replaced by activists, right? That's, I think, how how you describe it in the book. But if they, activists sort of implies that the person knows what they're doing, doesn't it?
0: Well, the thing is, some of them do. Some of them do, and not all of them do, but the, what they are teaching is activism. And so they are actually facilitators into activism. If they've adopted the idea that we should be raising a critical consciousness, whether they realize they're doing activism or not, they actually, in a sense, are, because they're, they're bringing a particular political view of the world and actively trying to instill that in other people so that they can see the world according to the political perspective. The, there are definitely some activists, because we, we catch them sometimes, for example, sometimes we just know, they go on TikTok and our, our friend Kaya, libs of TikTok, exposes them saying, I'm gonna transform the kids, you know, and I'm gonna raise this, I'm gonna do that. And sometimes we catch them explicitly. Sometimes there are hidden cameras or whatever. I know the, the South Carolina Freedom Caucus caught one of their large consultants. They did a secret little project, very old style, you know, James O'Keefe style sting on this, this consultant for the education department and Cotter saying, well, one of the things we do is we get some of the teachers who are activists to become co-conspirators, to bring it in against the law, whether it's CRT or whatever. So they know it's against the law, but they're gonna bring it in anyway. So we know there are some activists, and then we know that there's this kind of ideological capture, and then there's this kind of general, not exactly blameless, but mostly faultless ignorance of what's being participated in. Then they, those things all align in one direction and that direction is, you can think of it as like it's got a string and it's being pulled by the activists, who have to be very small in number, uh, the deliberate activists. But their goal is to turn kids into activists. And the goal in the more radical parts of colleges of education is to get the teachers, to, in, in the phrasing of Paulo Freire, that's now an ubiquitous thing you hear in education circles, teaching is a political act. If you have embraced the concept that teaching is a political act, you are an activist the second you set your foot in a classroom. If you believe teaching is a political act, you're an activist the second you set foot in the classroom. And So they're making activists in the teachers' colleges, some of them are, some of them aren't. They're making activists in the teaching, training, the continuing education, professional development courses, and they're impressing the importance and necessity of this. And then they're using that to make activists out of the students. Whether every teacher, most teachers are not actively complicit in this program, they're just trying to do the best they can to teach. But some are, and it doesn't take everybody.
1: Well, and I think the most important thing, you know, the thing that really struck me is that these other courses or classes or whatever it is are, in a sense, incidental to the true purpose. The true purpose is to basically create that. That activism, that conscientization—I can never pronounce that word properly. No. Um, we'll try of, it in Portuguese into too. Into the new, <laughs> in, in, you know, basically to create that consciousness of activism, right? right? And so it's no surprise that people can't do things at that level, because that's not indeed the ultimate purpose. It's sort of a side purpose.
0: Right, so the teachers have been sold, if, they're not, if they are not, activists, they're just gonna do it. But if they're not activists, they've been sold that this is the best way to increase student engagement. You've gotta get the kids interested, you gotta get them to learn And So this is actually, I'll give you an example of what Paulo Freire describes as generative themes, which is how you use a concept to generate the opportunity to have a political conversation that will conscientize or awaken or wokeify or politically radicalize the kids. And what he said, again, I'll bring you back to that, is that the content of the academic lesson itself is a mediator to the political conversation. This is a true example, it shocks people, so I put it out very often. If people have heard it before, my apologies. But this is a true example from an Indiana teacher professional development training in social emotional learning from just a couple of years ago. They were doing second grade mathematics as an example and given a word problem. Johnny is riding in the car with his mom and dad on the way to the amusement park. The amusement park is 50 miles away from their home. They've already traveled 30 miles. How much further do they have to go? And everybody's panicking, so they don't know if they can answer the math question. But obviously the goal in a a math pedagogy sense, as a former math instructor myself, would be to teach them to take the words, to set up the subtraction problem, 50 minus 30, to arrive at the solution of 20, and to rearticulate the solution in words, 20 miles to go right? And so that would be the goal of the exercise as a second grade problem. It's subtraction. It's not difficult, but getting kids to be able to take a paragraph and turn it in. This isn't what happens. So they're taught in the teacher training professional development courses. This is an example of what you do. Kids, you got to get them engaged, right? That's just good teaching. You need engaged students. Kids, raise your hand if you've ever been in an amusement park. And so of course there's seven. Some kids have, some kids probably haven't. Some raise their hands, some kids don't. Oh, wow, some of you have and some of you haven't. Why would it be? Now the mediator has happened. The generative theme is amusement park. That's the excuse to do what you're doing next. Who's been to an amusement park? That's the bridge. And then once we've taken the bridge, that's what Paulo Freire calls a codification of your conditions, then you can start to decodify it. Why is it that some of you have been to an amusement park and some haven't? And they are taught to continue to ask one kid after another, anybody else, anybody else, anybody else, until somebody says some kids can't afford it. Now you have an excuse to say well why, why is it that some people can afford what could we do about the fact that some kids haven't been because they can't afford it make it free maybe rich people could pay for it and all of a sudden you get to have a dialogue not in the language explicitly but in terms of the concepts of socialism and instead of doing it with second graders instead of answering teaching them to set up and solve a math word problem so the word problem became a mediator to a political conversation but there are dozens of opportunities in that one simple completely innocuous word problem. Amusement park. So you have the money thing. Somebody, It might be a differential. Maybe more white kids than black kids raise their hand. Now you're going to have a CRT, a CRT discussion through that correlation. But then you have not just the amusement park. What about do all families have a mom and a dad? And now you're having a conversation about single parenthood or feminism. or now you're having a conversation about same-sex parents. And so now sexuality. What about the idea of riding in the car? Now you can have a conversation about Environmentalism, is it really a good idea, guys, to ride in a car to to just go have fun? Couldn't we do like public transit? Couldn't we all ride on a train together? And you can see how you can create kind of the primrose path leading Pied Piper into political conversation, into political, into you facilitate the kids into thinking about political issues in a particular way, but you took something very innocuous and used that as the mediator to create the opportunity for generating political knowledge. That's the Ferrarian method actually put into practice, and that's, like I said, a genuine example from a social-emotional learning teacher training professional development module that was being done in Indiana a few years ago. So, um, a genuine example given to actual teachers actually in the profession. So, um, you can see how it works, and you can see how insidious it can be, and you can see how invisible it would be, and that's why I wrote the book, was parents can't figure out, they know the school's doing CRT, so they go to the school, they say, don't do critical race theory, and they say, oh, we're not. And then they give you the curriculum, maybe, and you look at it and you can't find it. And because it's, that's how they're doing it through Gloria Ladson Billing's culturally relevant approach. Let's make amusement park relevant. Why is it some kids have and some kids, have? you know, you get the, the picture. And so this is a very um, insidious method by which what they've done is they've stolen away education by transforming its mechanism. The mechanism isn't to set up a word problem and solve it anymore. The mechanism is to use the word problem as an excuse to facilitate kids into a particular political understanding of the thing depicted in the word problem. It's pretty amazing.
1: And we just didn't realize that all this was happening. It's kind of—I mean, you—you you didn't realize no. uh, you've been—you've been for for the benefit of many, you know, combing through some insane amounts of, of very difficult to read literature. So, any final thoughts? We've covered. We've covered. You know, basically this new film by Mike and And I want to encourage everyone to to watch it. You know, you'll see a little more James, Peter Bogosian, of course, Helen Pluckrose. It's pretty those.
0: funny, actually. Yeah.
1: Well, no, that, and that's what I remember. That's what actually caught my attention in those initial videos that Mike published years ago, which was you guys laughing about. I can't believe this. Um, but we looked at this presentation. I mean, we're going to link to that too. I think it's such an amazing, uh, you know, the genus species distinction. There's a whole bunch of great concepts there. And finally, you know, who would have guessed that our whole education system has these Marxist underpinnings today? I mean, there were there were hints of it. But any final thoughts?
0: I mean, this is it's it's a sad truth that when we have a high trust society, which we had achieved. Where we feel like we can trust the teachers to do teaching things, and we can trust the police to do police things, and we can trust businessmen to do business things in the interest of their, their shareholders, then we, that we don't keep our eye on that, you know, that vigilance that was referred to by the founding fathers, a republic if you can keep it, very kind of, you know, iconic American statement. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the Russian, it's closer to trust but verify. Well, when you have a high high enough trust society, sometimes you forget to verify and um, we went to sleep and stopped verifying. And the, um, those who try to subvert, whether for whatever political project, and in particular communists are famous for this, it is subversion is their preferred methodology while they remain disempowered. They're not very subversive and they don't tolerate subversion uh, after they get power. Hint, hint, woke kids. You're up against the wall here in a couple of years. Uh, they won't need you. I like to remind them of what communist societies do with the subverters, the destabilizers after the revolution. As Mao said, you know, there's different needs at different stages in the revolution. We needed a lot of destabilization with the youth. Well, we got rid of, you know, Liu Shaoqi, my primary uh, political opponent, so the Red Guard's too radical, off to the countryside with you. Uh, PLA chased him out of town. But. It's not gonna go well. But the the fact of the matter is that when we have a a high trust society, it's easy to forget to verify. And we have forgotten to verify. And we have to start verifying virtually everything because our business people have been captured by this ideology through their fealty to ESG, whether because of an extortion racket kind of literally on them, whether because they're just thinking, well, this is corporate best practices. This this matters, we're gonna make make a difference. I wanna do good in the world, not just make money. Whatever it is, our teachers have become corrupted by this political ideology because their schools got corrupted. The Long March of the Institutions laid out, Rudi Deutschki articulated it in '66, based off of what Mao did in the Cultural Revolution, uh, based off of what Gramsci described in, in the, the prison notebooks in the 1920s and 30s. This whole long march through the institutions, Marcuse called for it explicitly in 1972 in counter-revolution and revolt, and he says, well, we have to go into the fields, we have to bring the thought with us. And then the one main point he makes is we have to go into education at all levels. And so they've infiltrated the schools. So, of course, the teachers and the lawyers and the doctors are increasingly behold into an ideology because that's just good teaching, that's just good engineering. That's what I learned in school. And so they've corrupted that center of knowledge production, which brings us back to the film. The grievance studies affair has never been more relevant. The, the, The academic scholarship is not particularly relevant to the average person on the average day, at least not in a way that they recognize. It trickles out through the mechanisms of advanced societies to affect your life in meaningful ways every day, but you aren't thinking about it. You are in a university. Courses are designed around the latest research. Courses are designed around who's publishing. The designers of the courses are the people who have strong publication records. The tenured professors, the admitted professors are the ones who have the strong publication records. And this corruption of scholarship creates an entire Lysenkoist artifice that poisons the whole enterprise. And so when let's pretend, and I say that with all intensity, pretend the Biden administration is on the up and up. They're in the straight and narrow. They're legitimate. They're doing the best job they possibly could do for the American people, but they happen to be big believers in the academic scholarship, so They say, well, what are we supposed to do about this issue or that issue, race, gender, sexuality, trans? And they turn to the academic literature. And then it's an executive order from the White House. It's a rewrite of Title IX. It's one policy after another to where now you not only have to tolerate a man swimming in a women's swimming pool and in the locker room with the women changing before and after the meet and beating them in the in the meet and taking the the victory that they train their whole lives for dedicated their lives for in girls sports but also in fact the girls that complain are now guilty of a title IX violation and could be possibly expelled from school or lose their scholarships this is the kind of twisted perversion you get when the knowledge generating enterprise gets completely corrupted so again the 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 grievance studies affair the film it's called the reformers by the way by mike nana is a must watch you have to understand that that thing has not ever been more relevant and as time goes on until the corruption goes away it's only going to get more relevant this is a story that's happened before. Whether we point to Lysenko, or whether we point to Mao, we can point to these characters in, in kind of the darkest chapters of human history, or 20th century history at least, and we know where this story goes. We can make good predictions about where the story's going to go. So I, I, I urge people to take it seriously and to say, you know, we've got to start asking very hard questions. We can't simply trust. There has to be verify.
1: Well, James Lindsay, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Yeah, thanks. Thank you all for joining James Lindsay and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.